Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. Today's guest is a professor of psychology of UC Berkeley, an author of books including The Power Paradox and Born to be Good. He has done all sorts of experiments, and I think some of the discoveries he's made will really surprise you. They certainly did me. We also find out about the 36 questions that can apparently bring any two people together, the five love languages, and the importance of touch to our physical health. I hope you take something valuable from this chat with Professor Dacca Keltner. Hello, Dr. Dacca Keltner. It's great to have you here. I'm really interested in all your theories about how people can be happy. You study it all the time. So can you tell us what you do? Well, part of my job is at Berkeley is as a professor is to run this big lab. And we study two kinds of things. And one is for really 30 years since I began work with Paul Ekman is, um, you know, what is the landscape of human emotion and how do they affect our judgments? Where are they in the brain? How do they affect our bodies? And I've in particular been focused on emotions like compassion and gratitude and love and desire and awe, very important emotions for happiness. And then the other line of this work is on hierarchy and class and power. And we do all kinds of science. You know, we do lab experiments, big data, naturalistic studies of people out in the world. We try to understand these timeless phenomena. I heard about one of the studies you did about the cars, <laughs> how there was the posh cars would stop for the kid and the and the the cheaper cars. No, the posh cars wouldn't stop and the cheaper cars would. Can you tell me a little bit about that study? Why did you make the study and what did it tell Thank you? Thank you, Joss. So, you know, I had done a lot of work on how power leads to abuse. And, you know, it was really Lord Acton mm. who early on said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, I think people right. in the audience, you look out in the world at people who are powerful, political leaders or athletes, pop stars, the wealthy and the like, and, and you see a lot of troubling behavior, especially in the United States these mm. days. And then we got interested in privilege and wealth. And we started to find the same pattern of, of tendencies, which is if I have a lot of wealth and privilege and et cetera, I tend to take things at work and speak to people in inappropriate ways and engage in un even unethical behavior. And we really wanted to do a study that was dramatic. And actually, it, it begins in a personal experience, which is that I was biking home. I got to this four-way stop sign. I was about to bike forward, and this really expensive car came driving up, just rolled through the stop sign and almost hit me, right, and would have really hurt me. And, and even addition to oh the, in addition to that, was really angry at me <laughs> for, for being there. Yeah, I almost gave him the finger. So, you know, everybody's had that experience, right, of like, wow, the, the people who drive these posh cars or fancy cars, they kind of feel like mm -hmm. they arrogantly own the road. So what we did in a first mm -hmm. study is we 
position one person who was part of our team at a part of a road called a pedestrian zone marked with white stripes and cars mm-hmm. in California, they see a pedestrian looking like they're going to cross. They have to stop, right? Oh, you're talking about a zebra crossing? Yeah. Okay, you guys have right. That? Well, yeah, if you don't stop, it's against the law. Exactly. And it's dangerous. So we have this young person who's looking like they want to cross. Mm-hmm. And we just look at, as a car approaches that pedestrian zone, do they stop or do they drive through the pedestrian zone, almost hurting our pedestrian? And we code the cars, we put them into five categories from not very expensive cars to very posh BMWs and Mercedes and the like. And what we find is 100% of the drivers of poor cars stop. And about 45% of the drivers of the fancy cars drive through the pedestrian zone without stopping, right? So the question is why? Yeah, you know. Why do they do that? Is it because they don't care about the person trying to cross? Or is it because they can afford to pay the fine? Yeah. Or is it just because they're stupid (laughs) and like didn't see it or don't know the rules, you know, or um, haven't done their test? I mean, do you have to take into account all these different things? You do. Because you're guessing. Yeah. And, you know, I hope your audience is asking the really astute questions that you're asking, Joss, which is, okay, that's a, you've got the finding, right? Right. Well-to-do drivers don't pay attention to the rules of the road. so They're more carefree. Yeah. They're more like, whatever, I do what I want. So what is it? What's the explanation? And, you know, one is maybe that was a medical doctor and they're, you know, dashing off to do an emergency surgery. We don't know. So that's why we do lab studies. And what we mm-hmm. find is if you have privilege and wealth, you care a little bit less for the average human being. Oh, that's such a sad It's profound. Thought. It is profound. We even get that, that at the physiological sad. level, right? Like. My heart doesn't slow down when I see suffering uh, like it does for other people. If you're privileged, you're less careful in attending to other people. So maybe they didn't even see that person there. Are they even capable of seeing it? Right. And then, and then to your point, you know, they tend to think uh, that the rules don't apply to them. Right. You know, oops, that's for the ordinary person, but I'm a special person to whom the, the right. laws don't apply. So, Well, if they get fined, they can totally afford it and it's like peanuts. <laughs> so it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't matter as much. I, I think you're right. I think they can just buy their way out of, as we've learned. Yeah, they're just like, okay, whatever, find me a grand, please. I don't care. Whereas that would ruin somebody. I mean, if you don't have the money to lose, gosh, that would ruin your year. It could even ruin yeah, your life. Yeah, well put. So the incentives are different. So yeah, so there are a lot of reasons. And I was really, um, we got the finding, it was published, got a lot of attention because people spent so much time in their cars. And, you know, I remember mm. it was so astonishing. I was on a radio show and this police officer calls in from Florida, right, which is much different from Berkeley. And, he's, and he said, you know, you know, I have to agree with this Berkeley professor. When I pull over drivers who have broken the law, it's the drivers of fancy cars who start lecturing me about doing my job, you know. Oh, no, (laughs) really? So it really struck a chord. I'm so glad I've got a shit van. (laughs) (laughs) This makes me feel so much better. You're a moral person. (laughs) And people love you. Oh, my God, but I'm totally a petrol head as well. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Give me a fast car any day and I will take it. I will totally take it. Wow. So I read something else that you'd written in your book, Power Paradox. Yeah. And it was kind of suggesting, well, it was suggesting that kindness is power. Really, truly, you know, being kind and compassionate, helping people calm down if they're in a stressful situation, telling them a story that would help them to feel calm. And, you know, in that 
position you're at, you do have the power. Yeah. You have the power to help people feel better, yeah. which I think is the most important thing in the world. Yeah. But these studies and, you know, your stereotypical man in a posh car and maybe president of whatever country yeah. would come across as though they're not kind. Wow. Thank you for the careful reading of this. And I, and I think the, the themes that you're focusing on, Joss, are really important for our culture at this particular moment, particularly in the United States with the George Floyd protests and so forth. Mm. How to think about power is one of the hardest things to do. And, and people have grappled with it for 2,500 years, right? Sometimes people think about it as money, but that isn't really true. There's it's a, not no. it. Yeah. Some people think about it as fame, but there are famous people who really lose their power. They definitely lose their happiness. Yeah, yeah. Um, so historians often think about powers like who has the strongest army, but... Oh, who's got the biggest guns? Right, but, you know, Vietnam beat the United States. And so, you know, you can think mm -hmm. of obvious counterexamples. So how we think about power mm -hmm. is your ability to stir and move and affect the people around you, right? And this comes out of the thinking of Hannah Arendt, who's a brilliant uh, philosopher, and then Michel Foucault, that, you know, Joss's power is to what extent does she move people through her words and voice and so forth of the, around her? And I think that's a pretty mm -hmm. reasonable assessment. And then we ask the question, well, how do I do that, right? And lo and behold, there's all this research showing if I'm empathetic, if I'm kind, if I share resources with other people, I have good standing in the group and people will follow me. They'll allow me to be a leader. They'll be moved by my request, et cetera. So kindness not only is one of the strongest mm. pathways to happiness, but it's a, it's a great tool for gaining respect and power. And that's why I called the book The Power Paradox, which is that, as we just talked about, once I feel mm. powerful, different parts of my brain are activated. And I stop being kind. Oh, that's such an awful thought. <laughs> I hate that. I just hate that that can be true because that's, well, it's, it's sad, but it's actually terrifying because the people that are in power, they need to help us be happy yeah. so, and be okay. So we kind of bank on them being kind. Yeah. When the coronavirus happened and everyone was locked down like in the first few weeks, yeah. I started to kind of think, well, isn't this interesting how we've all, you know, we all have bitched and moaned about our governments, as we always do. And trust me, they do it in every country in the world, no matter how good the government is. We just don't like the man because that's just not what we like, but we need him. So I was sat there thinking, isn't it interesting that we are all, we're sat in our homes waiting for them to figure this out for us. They have to do this for us. We need them to lead. And we all think they're unkind. Yeah. How scary is that? Yeah, no. That's like a terrifying thought. So if all, our, our happiness, our safety, our health is in the hands of the most powerful. And if what you're saying is true, Doc, <laughs> <laughs> that means it's in the hands of really mean people. <laughs> and that's scary. I mean, people... Oh, God, I need a drink. <laughs> yeah, send it my way, too. Oh, my God. You know? Oh, dear. Well, this is part of the real despair in the United States right now, and the agitation is... And then the protest is enough is enough. You know, the people who are running the country, guiding our health care or the absence of it, and then running police units have fit a certain profile and they have a certain view of power, and it's we need kinder right. leaders now, right? We do. Now, is it possible? Can it happen? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the really interesting developments is women are rising in power. Ah, we all love that. We like a maternal aspect. Yes. <laughs> and they tend to avoid the abuses of power that we've been talking about. So I have hope. And I think that the counter reaction to Trump mm-hmm. in, in the U.S., who's, you know, Bolsonaro and Brazil and so forth, is going to be requiring leaders who are more attentive to the needs of many. Right. So I have this, it's not even a, an opinion, it's just a conversation in my head that I have often, feelings versus facts. I mean, I go out with a Republican, right? So my boyfriend is opposite to me <laughs> in in the voting scale, but very much the same as me in his heart. So it's quite interesting how people deal with things differently. And he'll be like, well, unemployment is at its lowest in America. Or not was anymore. before the obviously before the virus. Um, not anymore because no one is employed. But but certainly it was at its lowest ever, right? So historically ever. And I'm there going, yeah, but but the feeling is broken. And he's like, doesn't matter about the feeling. It's about the fact. There, there's statistics here, and I don't want to argue. But I'm like, oh, but I just. I really feel <laughs> I'm like Mrs. <laughs> Hippie Singer over here, sounding like a nut job. I'm like, I really do feel <laughs> that the feeling that is being created trumps your facts. And it's funny I say Trump, but um bum. Um because at the moment, well, America is certainly on the brink of a civil war, yeah, which yeah. is a fail, right? And there's no happiness in that. So you can have all your statistics and everyone can be employed, but if they all want to kill each other, then everything's kind of a little bit buggered, isn't it? It, First of all, people who grapple with how to get citizens to behave well, you know, use less fossil fuels or emit fewer carbon molecules, they, they know that, you know, statistics are often unpersuasive. What do you mean, unpersuasive? What does that mean? Well, you know, you hear statistics about the the disappearance of species or the disappearing Amazon jungle. And you hear the facts and you're like, oh, those are just facts. They don't sink in. But when we hear, when the messaging affects us emotionally, we're more likely to change attitudes. But you're right, Joss, you know, I really think that emotions, there isn't this sort of antithesis or, or contradiction between feeling and fact, because the role of feelings uh, and I really in- encountered this in working on the movie Inside Out. Emotions are really about getting us to see certain things in the world and taking action. So fear is about really notifying your body that there's uncertainty and threat out there and you've got to mm-hmm. work on it. And anger is about injustice. And so emotions right. have this deep reason within them. Sometimes they're misguided. They ignore facts or, or counter And they change so much too. You know, you can feel, I mean, speaking from a woman's perspective, you can feel (laughs) one way literally the day before and then feel differently the day afterwards, depending on who you're talking to and whether you're hungry or not. Yeah. You know, things like that actually make a a difference. Huge, huge. I mean, judges make different decisions when they're hungry as opposed to when they're not hungry. So, yeah, but that's the nature of identity and that's the nature of our social context, right? One moment I'm right. talking with somebody I find really annoying and another moment yeah. I'm hanging out with the Dalai Lama or whatever it is. And, and our feelings right. help us adapt to all these changing contexts. Right. It's quite amazing, isn't it, how the brain works? God. Do you study that? Do you study it? We do. We, we have several papers on the brain. You know, it's the most complicated mm-hmm. living organism in the world. There are 
hundred billion Magical, cells. Isn't it? Each one's connected to 15,000 cells. I mean, trying to make sense of it's a, a puzzle, but it's, it's spectacular. It's so thrilling yeah. to see what it does for us. Wow. What kind of people come to your classes? What do they want to do with, with this class in their life, with the mm. lessons they learn? Yeah. I teach happiness to undergraduates, but then I teach it online to, you know, we've had seven or 800,000 people enroll in the class. And I've How many? Several hundred thousand, I think 700,000. Gosh, um, really? Yeah. And you know, the, the first thing that's really striking, Joss, is I think right now in this moment of 2020, people feel like they've lost touch with happiness. Yeah. You know, they're not hanging around groups of people that they love. That's important, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's fundamental. The, physical touch is a big thing. Physical isn't it? touch, even is just a hug, huge. Yeah. Have you done studies on that? Yeah, we've. I mean, we've done a lot of work on touch about how it calms us and makes mm-hmm. us feel euphoric and makes us feel trusting. Right. So, there was um something we were talking about earlier today. I asked you, have you done a study on it? I actually know because you did one with the hand through. Yeah. What, what was it through a piece of paper or, or something? They couldn't see the other person, but they were trying to convey an emotion. How did that go? Yeah, you know, thanks for remembering remembering that study. So, you know, to, a person comes to the lab, there's a barrier there. They stick their right. arm through this barrier. It's a cloth barrier. They don't know what's on the other mm-hmm. side. Another person comes in. We give them a list of emotions. They just touch that other person's forearm to try to communicate emotions and you can detect gratitude and love and compassion with really high levels of accuracy. And I actually think touch is the primary way we express gratitude and love and compassion, which are everything in terms of happiness. So, yeah. you know, once I saw that, Absolutely. I was like, you know, you have to be touching people mm. to feel your place in the world and to feel meaning and happiness. Yep. It's so important. Yeah. And all this social distancing, yeah. I don't think I'm very good at it. I'm best <laughs> staying inside, actually, because if I just stay in, I'm not going to hug anyone. I've got yeah. no fear of that happening. Yeah. But no, I can't help it. Yeah. I just want to, it's my friend or, you know, a friend of mine asked me to go and see her friend who was poorly. Mm. She'd been sick for a little while and she'd been tested. She didn't have COVID. I haven't got COVID and we've all been in, we've all been locking down for weeks and weeks, and weeks. She said, you know, she'll be wearing a mask. Mm. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And I saw her and she was so happy to see me. I just wanted to give her a hug. Mm. And I did. And I think yeah. she just felt, it was just like, oh, we need to hug more. Yeah, yeah. And we discussed it. We were like, this, this social distancing, I know it's really important to do. And yeah. I would obviously tell everyone, just continue yeah. to do it. And I'm clearly an idiot. But... You need it. Yeah. And, you know, the hug that you gave to your friend, Joss, we know activates the vagus nerve, which is good for your health. It activates your immune system. Oh, uh, does it? It reduces inflammation. It's good for your physical health. And, and my hope is the people who are sending out the messaging about social distancing will make sure that they build in very important facts about touch, right? So, for right. example, if infants can't get COVID, and I don't think they can, you should be able to touch your children as much as you want, your young children, of right? Of course. I think once we get the testing in place, I hope that medical doctors are ready to say like, hey, if you're test negative, you're both are, you're fine to hug, you're fine to hug hold away. hands. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it's hard to find one thing that's better for your health, mental and physical than touch. 
And really? we're in a moment of really taking it away out of our social lives. That's interesting. Um, you said about the the vagus nerve. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Like, so you have your brain, and then coming out of your spinal cord are 20 different groups of neurons that we call the symp- the autonomic nervous system. Some of them rev up your body for flight, fight or flight tendencies, and those are called the sympathetic autonomic nervous system. And then there's this other part of your autonomic nervous system that comes out of the top of your spinal cord, and it's this big bundle of nerves. It's the largest bundle of nerves in our nervous system that goes to your throat, to your facial muscles. It helps you orient your head. It drops, the vagus nerve drops into your lungs and your heart and calms your breathing and your heart rate down. It moves into your gut and communicates with your microbiome, right? So the vagus nerve is the largest bundle of nerves that's coordinating all of this activity as you move through the, the world. And what we're learning is if you have elevated vagus nerve activation, which you measure by looking at breathing and heart rate, higher vagal tone is associated with more compassion, more happiness, more openness, better health, fewer colds, longevity, handling crisis. It's the most important indicator Mm. of the health of your body, and it's associated with happiness and kindness. So if you're not happy and you're not kind, you will get sick. Yeah. Is that fair to say? I've always been saying it, but I have no right and no study to back myself up. Well, but I feel like it's true. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you know, when I teach my happiness class and, you know, I've been teaching it 20 years and I get a lot of skeptics and I'm, I'm saying, look, you know, what we know is real strong happiness is associated with seven to 10 years of life expectancy. So if I'm feeling happy, I will live a longer life. And if I'm doing things that spiral my happiness downward, uh, it will probably yeah. cost me in terms of the health of my body and my life expectancy. Mm, I can believe that. I've had moments, as we all have, where I've been upset. Yeah, of course. You know, you live a life, you're going to have that. Um, and I remember there was one thing and it was so desperately upsetting. Some boy, of course. Of course it was a boy. <laughs> I was so upset. And my arm started like the joints started going funny I lost weight my teeth started breaking like literally my Uh, body was like I'm not good yeah stop being upset yeah and it wasn't to do with what I was drinking or eating or anything like that or exercising it was purely because I was just a bit sad I know and if there's a way to get out of it you should I know and that's why the science is really cool Joss because we know if I'm really sad and depressed it increases Mm -hmm. inflammation in my body, increases the stress response that affects your teeth. And there are studies, Mm. you know, people are more likely to die of heart attacks after a loved one has died or left them. Yeah. Yeah, So it's serious stuff. I can understand that. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? When people Mm. get older and their loved one goes. Yeah. Yeah. This happened to a friend of mine. His, um, His mom died and his dad was there with her for four years watching her die and he wasn't he wasn't sick and then all of a sudden he got sick and that was it he went and it was quite it was very sad of course but it was kind of beautiful because he he just wanted to be with her that's all he wanted he was very religious man thank god i'm so glad he was religious Mm -hmm. because he truly believed that that is exactly where he was gonna go is to sit with her and there's there's a beauty in that yeah no the 
older you get and when you're humbled by people dying, you understand mm. those sorts of beliefs about the afterlife. Totally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. It really is. Dealing with grief is, oh, makes you so tired, yeah. you know. No, it's profound. Have you done studies on how romance affects people's health and happiness? Not just the lust thing, not just the immediate <laughs> lust, because obviously we all get a bit giddy at that, but anything deeper. <laughs> Yeah, part of my lab was really interested in, and it's interesting you already have drawn the distinction between lust and enduring love. And there are a lot of data now showing you can pull them apart. And one of the really interesting things is enduring love, our work found, is really associated with oxytocin release. And oxytocin Mm -hmm. is this chemical in your brain and in your blood that helps you connect and be kind and empathize. I really love two findings about love that really um, stand out to me. In general, the more love in your life, the happier and the healthier you are. And and one is really the power of friendship and intimate bonds that feeling like people have your back is profoundly important to how long you live and how happy you are. Really? And the second one that really strikes me, Joss, is, and, and this is almost an American phenomenon too, which is... I think it's 17, 18% of our citizens are in poverty, you know, 20% of children really not getting off to the lives that you would hope they would. Right. And families are disrupted. And what you find is if you're an adult figure and there are people around you who are really suffering, younger people, and you just show love, yeah. right? They will do better. You're not family. You're not your te- their teacher. And you're just saying, hey, I, I care for you. That has huge effects on those people. So- I think love is wonderful to be giddy about it, like you said, but it has a deeper purpose in our society that we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, it keeps you healthy, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, I have a theory. I think the reason <laughs> why we do anything is love. Yeah. I think it's either the quest for it or the lack of it. Yeah. Even if it's just, why do we wake up and brush mm. our teeth? Well, because we love ourselves enough to do it. Yeah. And why does the big businessman go and get that big job? You yeah. know, because he thinks that that might make him more attractive to someone that he loves. I don't know. I just feel like everything is based around that. But maybe it's all based around, I don't know, attracting a mate or whatever. But Or money, yeah. But why money? What, what can you do with money if it's just paper? If it doesn't give anyone a feeling when, they t- when you tell them how much money you got. Yeah. You know, it's like th- there's a reason why people like the money. And it's not because of the paper that it's written on. No, it's the things they get that get them love. Yeah. And I've always, I've been around a couple of groups who are really, um, I would call spiritual groups. One was the Mm -hmm. Tibetan Buddhists and Dalai Lama. And then others were near the Gandhi ashram in India. You know, just sort of. How was that? It was incredible. But what really struck me is what you're saying, which is for them, and they were happier than me in some sense. It was about love. Like, if, if someone really is trying to hurt them, they see it as the absence of love in their childhood. It wasn't that they're evil yeah. people or malicious. No. So good thing to keep in mind. It's true. Yeah. It's very true. You know, a little baby isn't mean. Yeah. They get taught that. They're just little babies. They just come out and they're like yeah. little blank canvases. You know, I think, I believe the soul is there. I have nothing to prove that, but I just think that that's true. The soul is the soul and, um, you know, they are what they are. But that life can affect that little baby and make him upset and hurt people hurt people. So if we can can feel 
empathy towards those that are mean to us or hate us or want us to feel sad or broken or whatever, if we can feel love towards mm. them, not only will they be happier and they yeah. will, they might feel weird about it at first, but they will yeah. feel loved. But so will we. Yeah. So it's like a, it's a circular thing, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I just was... Easier uh, said than done. It's the, it's the challenge of our life to just practice kindness towards as many people as we can. You know, there's just a study out showing if you practice loving kindness where you're doing what you're talking about, Joss, of like, well, I'm kind to you and I love my family and the neighbors and the people around me. Uh, you become less racist, right? We all have a tendency yeah. to judge other groups a little negatively, and kindness diminishes that. So it's mm -hmm. it's a good thing to hang on to as we live life. Oh, I don't know whether this is yours, but I think you speak about this. Um, the 36 questions that make people fall in love. Yeah. Um, are those your questions? They're not. They're Art oh. Aarons, who's at Berkeley, and they're they're wonderful. Okay. So I started in the car with Cody. I've done a few. <laughs> I've got to do the rest tonight. It was really funny. Which Decker. ones did you do? Oh my God. <laughs> well, it was, uh, who would you invite to dinner? Who was it? Okay. <laughs> he goes, I love him so much. This man is the most gorgeous man. He always says the right thing. And I tell you what, he means it. I said, right, I have to ask you and then you have to ask me. They go, so who would you invite to dinner if you can invite anyone in the world? And he goes, you. Oh. straight up. He didn't even take a breath. And I was like, oh, <laughs> man. Okay, that, that's Oops. great. Thank you, baby. Exactly. Because my brain's kind of racking my brain thinking, who would I want to come to dinner? You know? <laughs> and he says me. And I'm like, okay, right. Because <laughs> um, I don't want to lie. Now I be wouldn't, honest. I know. I said, Cody, you would already be at dinner with me. So, you know, he was like, no. <laughs> it was so funny. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. I think everyone should do these 36 questions. Who would you say? I said Jordan Peterson. Ah. I think he's very interesting. Yeah. And I imagine him at dinner with my family, not just with me, uh -huh. but with my whole family. So my family is very split in their opinions. So my sister is like super left and her, her husband is so left that they might fall off the edge, you know? Yeah. They're really like loving, loving people, but to the point that if you're right, they think you're the biggest bastard in the world. So, you know, it's very, very extreme this way. And then my dad's really extreme the other way. Yeah. So... It's mad because you've got all these people in, in these different opinions. And then my brother, Harry, he's like, he's left, but he's also really balanced and he understands everyone. And I ask him to explain to me what each side thinks in my language. So he'll like layman things up for me a bit. Yeah. Because I, I never really know. I'm just like, I'm, I'm a swinger. I'm swinging all over the place. Thrown, thrown about by your passion. Right, exactly. And about what's the kindest? For me, the question is, yeah. what is the kindest thing? But you can imagine our conversations at any dinner is always wine, it's always late, and there's always arguments. And I thought, why not throw in Jordan Peterson, who's got all the facts? He's like, yeah well, this is a study on this. And the data does not suggest this. It suggests that. And it's just excellent to watch him. I think he would be excellent to come to dinner. He's been really important. Yeah. yeah absolutely. But, you know, yeah. he got a lot of flack, didn't he, for saying the wrong thing yeah. about, um, what was it, transgenders. He said there was forced speech in, in Canada and he didn't like the forced speech. 
It's yeah. so it's such a bugger, isn't it? How some people, um, a friend of mine, I asked him what he thinks about Jordan Peterson, and he was like, oh, "I don't like him," and I said, "Why?" And he goes, "I don't know. I just don't like him." Yeah. But why? And he's like, "Well, he's just mean, isn't he?" I'm like, "No, no, I don't. I don't think so." But that's again the feeling and the fact. So the feeling yeah. that's happening because he's bringing he's bringing all this data to the table, and it's very. It's not mean, but it's it's not very soft and fluffy the way he brings it. So when there's no sugar coating, I think the feeling people, they start to feel very prickly. And you have to know your audience in order to help people to understand you. So knowing your audience, I think, is important to people's understanding. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, one of the things that I think Peterson got in trouble for you know, although he's appealed to one audience for certain, you know, which is younger men, um, mm. but is this newer audience that middle-aged faculty members are suddenly seeing of people of color and different gender identities, which really, you know, they feel embraced and respected with a change in terminology. And I think that, you know, we have to, my own view is embrace. Yeah, exactly. Embrace everybody. Yeah. You know, no matter how wonderful and weird and magical and, you know, left, right, in the yeah. middle. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It just, everybody should be accepted. Even when <laughs> you're going through a phase, you're allowed to go through phases. My sister wanted to be a goth. That was hilarious. <laughs> so we all said, okay, Lou, here's some black lipstick. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> we go through phases and, you know, is it, is it wrong to go through a phase where you want to be a boy? I did. Yeah. When I was younger, I, I got a baseball cap and I was... Oh, I don't know, probably 10. And they wouldn't let me play football at school, quite simply because I'm a girl. Yeah. And the head of the school, which I'm sure he would have been dragged over the coals for this now, probably fired and probably put in jail. Who knows? <laughs> but he came out to me and he said, Joss, you can't play football, love. I said, why not? Yeah. He goes, well, you play netball. Yeah. Why? He goes, well, you just can't. What? Why? So this went on. So I got this cap and I used to put my hair up in the cap and I said to everyone, can you call me Alex, please? <laughs> <laughs> and did anyone call me Alex? No, they did not. And I am the most girly girl in the world now. But I wonder what my life would be like if they did call me Alex. Yeah. And if they did take me seriously, I wonder. I guess I'll never know. You, you won't know, but we are learning about that right now because we are in a big experiment. Yeah. So have you done any studies on that? No, I haven't. You know, I haven't. I mean, we've done a little bit of work on gender and how it shapes our emotions, mm -hmm. but gender and sexual identity um, and sexuality are uh, exp expanding literatures that I haven't been part of, um, but teach. It's just so interesting, isn't it? How yeah. people's brains work yeah. and what keeps them happy. I think acceptance is pretty much the bottom line, isn't it? Thank you for choosing that word because, you know, one of the things that I think people can often misread from the happiness literature and you hear about the steps towards happiness, like be with friends, fall in love, be optimistic, meditate, mm. practice compassion. And they ask about like, what about the complexity of life, right? Like when I feel really angry about politics or police brutality, right. or I feel complex feelings about my sexual identity, which we've been talking about. Mm. And there's this new literature coming in about acceptance, just embracing complexity, know that it changes, embrace yeah. a complexity of your own identity, embrace other people's complex identities is a, 
embrace that it's that it's fluid and it's going to move and yeah you don't have to be upset with yourself or anyone else right unless right. of course there's pain happening yeah yeah and even pain you know i mean there are studies of people who really have serious physical pain and if you can just accept it and say bodies have pain that you you fare better i do think mind over matter um i know it doesn't work with everything but yeah. it can it can help a little bit you know yeah. putting your head in a different space I watched this chap that had no arms and legs be mm. the most inspiring human being I've ever seen. Wow. I was like, wow. He was on top of this desk and he was talking to a group of young children, inspiring them, yeah. telling them they can do anything. Wow. And he, had, he was laughing, he was joking. I mean, what a life that he must lead. Yeah. It must yeah. be very painful. Yeah, absolutely. Incredibly painful, but he's found a way. Some people are just special like that, aren't they? They're just magical. Yeah, but a lot of people, we really, we often rise in those kinds of circumstances. Yeah, it is. It's quite beautiful, really. It's quite beautiful what us humans can do when we put our minds in the right spaces. ACAST recommends LGBTQ plus creators who are making an impact this month and beyond. Tune in for your new favorite show. Hello, I'm Danny Pellegrino, and I host the Everything Iconic podcast. If you're into reality TV and pop culture, subscribe to Everything Iconic, where I break down all of your favorite Bravo shows like The Real Housewives and Vanderpump Rules. I interview celebrity guests and take a bunch of detours along the way. Everyone from Cameron Diaz, Rosie O'Donnell, Daniel Levy, Andy Cohen, Katie Couric, and even Queen icon legend Miss Piggy have stopped by, so you'll never want to miss an episode. You could find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino and subscribe to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, the show with over 23 million downloads on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. I agree. So, how important is being unhappy to being happy? And that's probably a bit of a weird question, but I ask because if there's no dark, you can't see light. Yeah. You know, if there's nothing to compare it to, then how would you even recognize happiness if you didn't have a shit day yeah. every now and then? Well, you know, I teach that in a couple of different ways. And, and, and I think there's this really cool science. And the first is that life has suffering, you know, and this is the great Buddhist notion, the first noble truth of you're going to get disease, people around you are going to die, you will experience suffering, physical pain. And, and there are a, a lot of new approaches to embracing that and to feeling it and to being mindful of it, if you will. And I think that that's in part what you're talking about is to recognize, wow, I will have dark nights of the soul. And I will have periods mm -hmm. where in my love life, I really am frustrated with the person I live with or my children or whatever the case may mm -hmm. be. That's part of the human condition. And when we accept, to use your word, Joss, we're in better shape. Second point, which is really interesting to me, and I teach this to my 20-year-old students, and, and it hits them a little hard, is I believe, you know, we talked about kindness and compassion as being a central pathway to happiness. Mm. And they begin in, in encounters with suffering, Right. Right. That you see somebody who's homeless or who your instance is somebody who lost their arms and legs. Mm. And that's where a lot of the mind does its best work is to say, 
man, there are people dying in Syria or there's some, they're in Berkeley, California, there are too many homeless or mm. there are 2 million people in prison who need to find ways to lead more meaningful lives. When we embrace suffering, we're often at our best. And there's an entire neurophysiology of that that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the older I get, um, I, I see this wonderful nuance in the happiness literature of, yeah, it's great to be grateful and optimistic and so forth, but embrace suffering and, and, and go after it and make it better, right? So I think mm-hmm. it's really important point to, to make. Let's talk about the Buddhist belief. I'm quite intrigued by that. Um, I had an opinion on, on the Buddhist belief a while ago, and then it got changed a little bit because I went to Bhutan, and Bhutan's supposed to be the happiest country in the world, right? It was lovely. Everyone was so sweet. Oh my God, what lovely people. However, I went to see a charity that was, uh, interestingly enough, funded by the king. Yeah. So basically the government. But he wouldn't speak about it. Oh, this is such a crazy situation. So I understood the belief was just to be kind to everyone all the time, to not kill anything. It just sounded so beautiful. And then I realized their most popular dish was meat. I was like, hang on a minute. I thought you weren't going to kill anything. I'm such a literal person, Dakar. <laughs> Honestly, I'm so literal. It's annoying. But I thought they weren't supposed to kill anything. Well, no, everything's imported. They don't kill it. So there's your loophole. But the thing that I found interesting and scary a little bit was the charity was for disabled children. And I wasn't quite sure much about it when I went in. You know, I knew that it was for kids and I knew that they needed to be educated and be part of society. And, you know, just I've been to many charities like that. And I said to the lady, what would the kids be doing if the charity wasn't in existence? And she goes, well they would just stay inside. And I said, what do you mean they stay inside? What do you mean like they'd just be bored? And she's like, no, they just, they're inside. She kept repeating that. I was like, what is she talking about? I couldn't, there was like a language barrier. And I finally understood that people in Bhutan, they lock their children inside and tie them up often because they believe that in karma so much, And karma is a wonderful belief. It it keeps us behaving, right? But when it goes so far, it can turn into something like, basically, it's child abuse. So if, if the woman has had a baby and the baby is disabled, the society looks down on her as though, well, you deserve it because karma has said that you have done something in your bad in your past life. And now you've had a disabled child and the disabled child is even worse because he's the disabled one. So he must have been a murderer or something in his past life. So that shocked me a lot yeah. in in the Buddhist belief. Um, I don't know if you came across anything like that when you were studying it, but I was like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, I think we learn certain things from the countries that are happier. You know, they have stronger community. They have better health care, more public education. But, you know, it's always startling. Mad, to go to countries that you admire and see interesting deviations from your thoughts about happiness. You know, people come to the United States and they come to Berkeley. Mm. It's like, wow, it's going to be free and loving and so forth. And, yeah. And, you know, we have seven, 800,000 homeless people in the United States who are really suffering and, and people are like, that's shocking, you know? So yeah. I think I always talk about 
you know, countries and those kinds of experiences can teach us about strengths we want to cultivate, the Bhutanese Mm -hmm. sort of practice of of nonviolence or whatever. But then they have weaknesses too that we can learn from, right? Including our our own weaknesses. So I think your experience is really revealing. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? I was like, wow, I can't bloody believe that. And it just goes to show that the grass, oh, this is a lovely thing. Do you know the um, the musician, the singer Solomon Burke? I don't. He's a soul, a soul singer from time past. Unfortunately, he passed away. Mm. But he said to me, Joss, the grass is not greener. It's just grass. Yeah. And I thought, oh, Amazing. that's true. Isn't that true? Yeah. You know, this country is amazing in some ways and awful in others. And you can say the same for England and you can say the same for Bhutan. You can say the same for India, everywhere. But we choose to focus on the bit that makes us happy or the bit that makes us sad. (laughs) Right. It's it's choice, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I'm making it simple. I know I live in the United States and, and, you know, writing the power paradox. I reviewed a lot of study. Mm -hmm. I mean. If you're born into extreme poverty, it's it's harder to be happy, you know. Right. And that's uh, those are facts, and it's hard to mm-hmm. you don't choose them, and and so we have a lot of work to do to make that better. Is there a um? Is there like a a monetary bracket where which is the happiest? Yeah. Because it, it's certainly not going to be the top, is it? That we don't know, but there is a famous finding by Angus Deaton, Deaton and. Danny Kahneman, that in the United States at about $75,000 is where you kind of peak in happiness. And so if you're working harder to make more money than that, which would be kind of a middle-class income across the country. And I think what that finding tells us is be satisfied once you can pay your bills and save a little and don't kill yourself to make an extra $20,000, right? But that study- Spend time with your family. Right, exactly. And hug people more. Yeah. Spend time hugging people. Don't worry about the extra cash. Exactly. Among many things. <laughs> <laughs> I love the hugging thing. It's brilliant. <laughs> I'm glad you do. <laughs> oh, so the 36 questions, Mike, I didn't get to ask you. Have you ever seen it work? Because it says it makes people fall in love. Sorry to circle back to that. But yeah. I just wanted to ask, have you ever actually witnessed after 36 questions, two people are just in love? <laughs> You know, I never have, but I we did a podcast episode on it, and it brought people closer in their marriage, which is great. Uh, oh, and then it also, nice. um, I have seen the studies of how it makes people from really different groups become friends. You know, ah. so if I'm African American and I'm talking to a European American in the U.S., mm. there may be a little distrust there, and those questions help us become friends. Oh, everybody should do it. Yeah, no, it's, I love them. I did it with my family. Uh, my daughter and my wife about um, two months ago. It was, nice. it was great. Yeah. So when you're living your everyday life, I know that you study this all the time, so it's got to be in the front of your mind. Yeah. So when I'm listening to music, I don't listen how I used to when I was a yeah. kid. I listen like, well, how's the drums cut? How's the mix on the vocals? Like, is there auto-tune on that voice? I think there is. You know, like I start, I break it down into pieces when I listen. Um, do you do that in conversation and within your, your very close relationships? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I think that's why the science, I mean, it's, it's like learning how to taste good wines. It's learning how to listen to music. It gives you this framework to be thinking about, oh, that's where two friends are reciprocating. 
right? Or that's, oh, that couple is really listening appreciatively. Or boy, that child expressed gratitude. And it really gives you this sense of how we can work well and how we often fall short. So it's a, it's been really powerful, Joss, in a lot of people's lives. I bet. And certainly in yours, because you're, you're no, you're at the forefront of it. So if you're in the middle of it, your children and your wife and anyone that's close to you, I think will, well, they can't help but learn from it and they're going to benefit from it because you will act differently, right? Than you would have before. Except my daughters. My daughters are at the Euro. They reject everything I say. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, what what do they do? Are they going to go into the similar similar sphere there yeah my one's interested in the environment the other's interested in tech uh there you go congratulations pups you did it you made two good people <laughs> lots of gray hair <laughs> <laughs> oh my god the pressure of growing humans oh, <laughs> did it bring you a lot of happiness oh uh, it changed my life you know it really and and you know it's interesting we keep talking about touch once you have kids you just start playing and wrestling and carrying them and they're on your shoulders and they play with your hair and they sleep next to you. I mean, it was just so much touch and it it taught me everything about touch and kindness. um, Mm. So it was powerful. Have you, um, have you read the five love languages? I haven't. Oh, I think you might like it. It's only a little one. It's only a little book and it's written by, I think it's called Gary Chapman and it's for people that want to fix their marriage or also for people that want to connect with their kids and stuff like that. So the idea is that there's five love lang- primary love languages and one may mean more to you than another one. So you've got physical touches in there, nice. um, acts of service. Cool. I love that one, actually. I'm an acts of service girl. Yeah. yeah. Like I'll, I'll clean up or I'll do the dishwasher or pick something up for someone and I love it when people do that for me like I I'm acts of service quality time is also one of mine I love that's like watching a movie together going for a walk what's the other oh gifts is one oh words of affirmation nice so words of affirmation is actually at the bottom of my list so it doesn't mean I don't like it it just means well sometimes it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable but it means that it's not the top. So I happen to have a partner that that's at the top of his. So reading it is wonderful because it teaches you about your partner or your daughter or whatever. That's been really wonderful. So maybe once you read it, you'll learn, oh my God, my daughter's actually, she's actually words of affirmation. She's not physical touch or, you know. It's good to know those differences too. Yeah. I mean, if, if touch is such a huge thing to people's happiness, um, what if you get somebody that's like freaked out by people's touch? Well, I mean, I think and that, there are a lot of those, you know, we always, and this is where language can really mislead us is individual differences are so profound, right? Mm-hmm. 50% of everything we've been talking about is shaped by your genetics. You know, the, what your parents gave you and it manifests as your baby temperament and your early personality. And so there are people who love touch. There are people who only like to touch very selectively, right? So each of these statements we're making about love or touch or compassion or suffering really varies. So you have to be thoughtful about that. We have to know our audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I just quickly (laughs) want to talk to you about the book on awe before we go. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking, Joss. Um, I, for the past 10 years, have been studying awe, the Mm -hmm. feeling of 
being around vast things or big things you don't understand that are mysterious. Like the Grand Canyon when you stand in the middle and you're like, wow. Right. Grand Canyon, people who amaze you, music, art, big ideas, spirituality, life and death. And part of what it's going to be about is um, the new science of our understanding of why do we tear up? Why do we get goosebumps? Why do we, why does music change our lives, right? Right. Um, why do we move together and start to feel ecstatic? Um, and then part of it is kind of my own personal story where I lost my younger brother uh, oh, to cancer. Thank you. And um, as I was watching him die, and he was my lifetime, lifelong companion in awe. We did everything mm. awe-inspiring. And as I watched him go, I felt awe. Right. I was like, wow, you know, I don't understand this. Um, and it led to this personal search about how do you recover and find awe again when life takes away the big things that give you awe. So it's, it's uh, been really, it'll be out in a year or two and hopefully I can come back and, but uh, keep an eye out on for it. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. How old was your brother? He was 56. Yeah. So when you lose people, yeah. who are close to you and you grieve as their absence becomes present in your life. You're like, I traveled with him. I played sports yeah. with him. We went to nightclubs together. We raised daughters together. We laughed together. We, right. everything that gives you awe, I had gotten from him, right? Wow. He inspired me. And so it's been a, a rediscovery of what gives me awe. Right. So now it's different. Yeah, yeah, profoundly, you know, and it's been hard work. Yeah, I'm sure. It's um it's a weird thing. Grief sucks so bad. Yeah. A friend of mine said to me, it was actually I lost my dog, you know, it's not yeah, the same as that's serious. It was a big thing for me. Yeah. He was kind. He said he wasn't like, How are you? You're all right, which is so annoying. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously you're not all right. No. He said, So How's the new shape of your heart? Are you getting to know mm. it yet? Have you kind of figured out what that is or how's that going? And I feel like that's what we have to do a bit. I Well, that gave me goosebumps, you know, and I think when people are grieving and it's a human universal, it's good to do what your friend said, which is like, wow, life's different. How's it all taking shape for you? And for me, I saw the world through my brother's eyes and I heard him and he, his mind, his voice was in my mind. Mm. That was all gone, you know, and, or it was different. And I had to, I have to still am like figuring out what am I now? And awe yeah. was key. It really has helped me find my, my roots again. So you're rediscovering awe yeah. in a new way. Yeah. Wow. That's something. I can't mm. wait to read that book. Is it finished? Have you written it? <laughs> I have another eight months to finish and then it'll take another year to get it. So it'll be out in two years, probably. Okay. Well, I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for writing it. Thank you for being brave and honest enough to do that. Cause I, I'm sure that that could be quite difficult. So yeah, thanks hard. for doing it. It helps people, you know? Yeah. Isn't that weird how showing your pain mm. can help people feel better? Yeah. And in a way it helps people feel um, comforted Profound in their own pain. Yeah. Yeah, so they don't feel alone anymore. Yeah, but only certain people are able to do that—the brave ones, basically. So thank you. Thanks. This has been this has been so lovely, and I know I've kept you actually ten minutes too long. <laughs> I could keep talking for a long time. <laughs>
Do you know <laughs> what? You're going to be my answer to the first question. I want you to come around for dinner. Okay. And talk to I'll my whole family. <laughs> Sunday roast at Joss's. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll be there. <laughs> Tell me where. Totally. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joss. It was wonderful being with you. Take care. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Walida. It's very important to me to work with brands that align with my personal ethics. So I've chosen a brand that leads on sustainability. They use natural and organic ingredients and everything they do is fair trade. It's nice to know that when you're scrubbing your face with gorgeousness. They've been operating sustainably for 100 years. Next year will be 100 years. They've pioneered the way for others to follow, from biodynamic farming to setting the standards for ethical, sustainable businesses. Find out more about Walida at walida.co.uk. Oh my God, how could I smush the end? Walida.co.uk. On with the show.